sit together in the dark. They speak. Their voices rise together. Their voices fall together. One voice speaks of this, the other of that. When they join, their words turn into flames, their voices into fire. This is Voice of the Fire, a podcast about storytelling. Welcome. My name is Sebastian and this is Voice of the Fire, a podcast about storytelling. The Sampo is forged, a rogue screws, there's a wedding, a murder, the blues. A surf bites the dust, the Sampo gets bust, and Finland receives the good news. This is how the poet and translator Keith Bosley describes the Kalevala in three sentences. And from that alone you should be able to tell where our journey is going to lead us today. We're going up far into the north of Europe, into the country of Finland, the country of the Kalevala. Finland has a very strong history of oral storytelling. The Institute of Folklore Studies at the University of Helsinki is today one of the largest institutes of its uh, kind. And folklore studies are being taken very serious, at least in the world of academia. This all has to do with the importance of the Kalevala to Finnish culture, to Finnish sense of, 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 being, a of, of uh, being a nation. But what is the Kalevala? The Kalevala is a collection of epic poems, epic songs, epic hymns that was collected in the 19th century by a man named Elias Lönnrot. He was a minor state official and he travelled into the region of what is today Karelia which was back then Karelia as well, but during that time Finland did not exist as a, a real nation. Finland had been occupied by Sweden, had been liberated and then occupied by Russia. So the Finns were um, little more than tribes lost between two larger, older, more established cultures. There were the Laps up in the north, of course, there were the Finns, in what is today most of Finland, and there were the Karelians. Karelia is towards the east of Finland. Large parts of it today are belonging to Russia. They still share uh, similarities of language, just as the Estonians do with uh, Finland. Finnish language itself 
is a very considered a very isolated language. The Finno-Ugristic language group that this language belongs to. So nominally it is very very similar to Hungarian. Actually it isn't. Uh, nobody who speaks Finnish understands Hungarian and nobody who speaks Hungarian understands Finnish. So the languages are really just linguistically related, not uh, in any way. It's not like Spanish and Portuguese or even Spanish and Italian where if you know one you're bound to understand a little bit of the other. No, not at all. The languages do not overlap. Yet what happened there and how, how did Finland become a nation and what role did Elias Lönnrod and the Kalevala play in it? So Lönnrod went to Karelia to collect texts, to collect um, uh, stories told in the oral tradition, to collect the songs of the old bards and shamans that were still sung in that region. And he undertook a number of journeys there and he collected a lot of texts, collected a lot of material. He talked to a lot of people, listened to a lot of songs. Um, that was during the um, Romantic... Well, they were inspired by the ro Romantic period, inspired by people like uh, uh, Goethe and Hölderlin in Germany and uh, to some degree probably also Keats, um, Byron in, in England. And suddenly people were beginning to romanticize the role of the traditional singer. And so people who had until then gone around, sung their songs, perhaps for a few coins, and often lived quite miserable lives, suddenly found themselves to be romantic figures, to be figures of tales themselves. And people, similar to the Brothers Grimm did in Germany, people were trying to find them, or trying to listen to their songs and tales. So that's what Lönnrod did. He collected these songs and tales in various texts, the most famous and the most well-edited and most impactful of those texts became the Kalevala. The great Finnish epic. And it's quite difficult to sum up the Kalevala. Um, it is at least partly the story of Venamoinen and the mythic land of Kalevala, which is born under his feet and under his guidance and through his songs. And then it becomes the tale of the forging of the Sampo, which is a sort of a mythical MacGuffin. Nobody really knows what the Sampo is, if it is a mill, if it is um, some something used in ritual. Nobody really knows. And then it becomes the tale of how the Sampo is destroyed. And then it becomes a tale of rivaling clans and kings, a tale of murder and betrayal. And in the end, probably um, due to Lundrod's editing, it becomes a not, not 
totally overt but still noticeable tale of how Christianity came to the wild lands of the north and how the old gods and the old songs and the old beliefs disappear. This is the Kalevala in a very, very small nutshell. But the Kalevala was, for the first time, a collection of texts in Finnish language. And so around these texts a nation grew. Around their songs and around their stories the nation of Finland grew. People had a sense of who they were, what language they spoke, and a sense of pride in this identity, a sense of pride in this language for probably the first time, and they could use that to position themselves against the aristocratic Swedes and against the Russians. And what is thoroughly fascinating about the Kalevala is that it is an epic poem similar to the Odyssey, similar to Beowulf, tales that have been told hundreds if not thousands of years ago. And this tale was still told in the 19th century. So basically it is the youngest of the epics. And it comes in a time when other nations were busy with industry, busy burning coals, busy waging already uh, pre-industrial wars. And there was this agricultural society, pre-industrial, in the 19th, uh, early 20th century. And they were still singing these songs, still telling these tales. Like uh, the sages and the shamans and the storytellers of and the bards of old. And that is a large part of the fascination of this epic. The Kalevala. But what is happening to other forms of storytelling? Is storytelling alive in Finland? Finland has a very, very active stand-up comedy scene, which may be surprising or may not be surprising. Many bars, in many bars you can find, if you go to Helsinki today, um, stand-up comedians speaking, or people going through a stand-up routine, often in Finnish, but quite often also in English. One would think that they do it in English because they want to make things more difficult for themselves, or at least that's the, the, the sense that you get, and not necessarily for the English-speaking people who come there. I think you could find a, a, an entirely Finnish audience, perhaps one English speaker, and the person there would still go about it in English. And it very much suits the, the atmosphere of um, drunkenness and... Um, and not taking yourself entirely seriously, trying to take the piss out of each other and out of yourselves, that rules Helsinki towards the later evenings and nights of a weekend. Traditional storytelling, in the form it was done in the Kalevala, even though these texts are relatively revered, does not exist, does not exist strongly. There is a bit of a scene, there is a growing scene, and to 
get to know this scene a little bit better, I'm joined today by the most preeminent Finnish storyteller and performance storyteller, Markus Lukonen. What I would like to uh, talk to you about is, first of all, how did you become a storyteller and how do you see yourself as a storyteller, as a person in the whole wide world of performance and storytelling? Mm. So how far should I go? <laughs> as far uh, as you want, you know, like yeah, this morning or the yeah. morning of all mornings when you were born. <laughs> yeah, every day is a new day and every day is a new day to become a storyteller. I think some way, some ways I could see that it started around 2003-2004 when I was doing drama studies and theater studies and we had a workshop in Sweden with storyteller Ingerlise Ulrich and um, that one week was one week workshop was really inspiring for me and as as the acting studies what we were doing and the theater studies were really strict on on a script and on that week got really interested about this uh, improvisation and free form of storytelling and I yeah remember it was just week after the workshop in Sweden, we put up our first story cafe in Helsinki and started to organize different kind of events. And from that, to working as a storyteller started for me, to building up these small events and concentrating on my studies in storytelling. Mm, yeah. What were your studies in storytelling? Did you do uh, workshops? Did you uh, go out and pick up stories yourself? Did you just start to tell them? Mm. The first one was a workshop uh, in Sweden, but then I was doing drama studies. So we had we had studies in acting and directing and uh, poetry recital. So on, on those my studies, I was quite a lot drawn into storytelling. So all of the project I wanted to do in, a, in drama studies, I was concentrating somehow on my storytelling, picking up some stories and using those in my performances. And then in Finland, we don't have a lot, like, there's not this new way of storytelling. On beginning of 2000, there was a really little. So I did some workshops in UK, and every time I saw any possibility to see some, some storyteller from abroad, mostly from UK or Sweden. And I found and went to see the shows, what they had. Mm, yeah. Pretty much, yeah. We were talking about this a little bit the last time we met, that the scene, um, or at least the scene that you found in Finland was basically non-existent, the storytelling yeah. scene. Yeah. So you have been quite busy over the past, what is it, from 2003 to now, to the, over the past 14 years, to create a little bit of a storytelling scene. Uh, yeah, it has been quite a lot of that, that building a scene, at least in Helsinki, the building up a small events, starting to find more possibilities for storytellers to go, uh, to perform and to run workshops and to get some people here to give workshops for people who are interested about storytelling. But at the same time as 
as longer I, I worked and more I got networked, uh, finding the networks in Finland, more I find that there are people, that there is, there is not a one group, or you cannot say there is not seen, but there is people who are working with storytelling mm-hmm. and as storytellers somehow. But on the beginning, you don't, you see only narrow your own own area and your or kind of your own bubble of storytelling. That here I am, but then you start to see wider and wider. And of course, there is a lot of yeah people who are using it in different ways. In a different ways, yeah. But your idea was coming from a, a performance background. You knew, did you know exactly what kind of storytelling you wanted to do? I think I didn't. I got really, really inspired from the work uh, first uh, workshop, and what was so inspiring for me was this. Uh, I think we spoke about that with you earlier. Also, this feeling that I am the author, that I'm also writing the script, mm-hmm. I'm performing it, and I'm directing myself. Mm-hmm. So this feeling of creating your own piece, not just being actor who is directed. Mm-hmm. Mm. When I started, I it's it's a lot of uh, folk, folk tales from different countries. And of course, um, the first ones from Africa or Further away from Finland, the better. Yes. Kind of. Yes. The Finnish stories are not interesting for me, or not for anybody. But if I find the stories from other side of the world, it's like, wow, how interesting is this? Uh, that has changed a lot. But it's easy to get interested about that new stuff when you are young. Yeah. Yeah, the fascinating stories from afar. Like you think, yeah. How rich is the imagination elsewhere? And my own country doesn't have anything. And it's like it's a bit snobbish, I think, at the beginning. But um, it is. Yeah. It's what draws you first, and I, I can absolutely understand that. Yeah. Um, so, what was your first performance like? Were you just you? You said you went uh, to a cafe, so you were just renting that cafe there, and you were trying to get people together, and started telling them stories, or did you make your own little? Um, show beforehand the first ones were that there was a few of my friends uh, I think four people so we just had a cafe put up the posters that it's going to be a storytelling cafe tonight I think we didn't pay any rent but we promised for the cafe keeper that there will be some customers who will mm. buy some yeah. coffee and some pies and and uh, the deal was yeah I think we made it so that all of us prepared one story or two, not not long ones, but something five to fifteen minutes. So there would be like four or five stories on the evening. I think, but quite soon because the first first year was like that that it was only us performing, me and some some other other my friends. But quite often we started to have this open open mic or open chair or open stage part because realize that so many people are interested to tell stories and it's so good to give this this platform for people that they are able to tell stories we were the one who prepared something but then a lot of new people came in who wanted to tell stories as well mm-hmm. and so this, that was the start yeah 
This is something that has stayed with you, I think, because you're still doing these storytelling cafes or, or um, these kind of open mic storytelling sessions. Is that right? Yeah, it's right. Yeah, it has stayed with me and I it, I feel it as part of me as a storyteller or my work is part of it is building these platforms where people are, which gives people the opportunity to tell stories. One part is just these story cafes where is open states or it's mainly open states but other one is also how do i say this building platforms and encouraging people to tell their own stories uh, tell their personal stories i think that's quite important nowadays as part of storyteller's job and mm -hmm. part of the world today it's quite important that we get people to open their mouth and give them possibility to tell their views of the world, tell their ideas, tell their mm -hmm. dreams. And that's a big project we have now in Finland with this story sharing universum. Mm -hmm. It's actually about three years now. But last year, strongly, more than once a month, this open events where, where we invite immigrants, asylum seekers and native Finns in this storytelling, story sharing cafe, and we put them to tell stories to each other. Yeah, it's so, a, it's creating a very, very places that people can meet and meet through the stories because I think it's good and it's easy medium for all of us. It's easy to me to understand you when you tell about your life as stories. Mm -hmm. You're creating an atmosphere where it is um, safe and where it is fun to tell those kind of stories. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you kind of a little bit forced to tell, not too much, but it's kind of yeah. It gives you, you a push. Forced. You need you a push to tell those stories. <laughs> yes, I think that's beautiful because one of the um, whenever I talk about stories with uh, storytelling with other storytellers, we come back to that sort of community building aspect of storytelling yeah. that it creates bonds between people. Mm. That if you know somebody else's story, if you know their background, if you know their view. Well, suddenly they're part of your life, at least a little, tiny little bit. Yeah. And you think of yeah. them differently. Yeah, I think, and that's in Finland, at least quite important at the moment with this um, uh, refugee crisis, what happened two years ago, like so many, so many people coming suddenly to Finland. And it's, uh, native Finns are afraid, they are scared. <laughs> of the newcomers and the newcomers don't know how to behave here and everybody is scared and so it's important to get these two or ten different groups together and hear the stories of the and as you say just uh, listening a story about somebody's uh, favorite food if you tell about your favorite food I will understand more who, who you are and I will understand more how how similar in the end we are and that's one way to help with these people who, who are scared. Yeah. Kind of integrate also as Finns to this new society of Finland. Yeah, both sides would be scared about that. You know, for one side they come to a completely new place they might not know anything about. And there the people are scared of them too. So Yeah. Um what what sort of um uh, resonance do you get for this? Quite a lot in one year now. Uh, in the beginning, we get a lot uh, because because we invite one one part of the group is coming straight from the refugee centers 
in Finland. And then a lot of, uh, of course, the first part of the Finnish people who come there are the people who think as us. Yes. They they already open-minded and... But now it has grown. It's we get more and more people, and actually, last three three cafes has been that we run out of chairs. There's no oh, like we try to get uh, we have fit everybody in, but it's still like oh sorry you have to. There's no place to sit down, but uh, I'll organize you something. Mm. A lot of people who have moved to Finland, like somebody from for studying and somebody with the marriage 10 years ago but also more and more just ordinary Finnish people yeah but of course we don't get those people who are against uh, immigration no that's not that's very hard to do but yeah that's you you immediately realized where i wanted to go with the question is because often these projects uh they appeal to people who already are of that same opinion yeah. and that so is, to reach yeah. people who are like in the middle who don't know anything but would like to know a little bit more i think that's great yeah. that's that, and i have had that feeling now in on this year 2017 that i'm on their door and people come in and there has been some some uh, audience, Finnish audience, who is like, they're so happy that I speak in English, uh, in Finnish to them when they come. Like, oh, you are, you are Finnish? Because I see from their eyes that they are afraid. They are they are interested. Who are these people? Who are these immigrants? What What's this project? I would like to meet. And I realized that they only read from the newspapers, but still they they are afraid. They, they are open-minded, but it's like, making this step to come in mm-hmm. and I was like Ooh, so happy yes, well, just for that one moment meeting this one guy like yes just you we wanted to hear <laughs> <laughs> yeah that's exactly who you want to reach with it and I'm glad to hear that it works out that way and what now is is great about that project because just this Monday uh, we got the prize from uh, as an, uh, a theater deed of the year Oh, right. Like theater act of the year. So the, we had a big celebration on Monday where all the the best play and the best theater of the year okay. got the, uh, the best actor got the okay. prize. And our project got this like the best uh, theater deed of the year. Oh, congratulations. So, yeah, thank you. That's, and yeah, because that makes it more. It's great publicity too. It's and really people get, great publicity. get interested. So. Yeah. And, then we had in the main main this Helsingin Sanomat, the main newspaper of Finland in the next day. So there was one page article about the project we are doing. So that kind of publicity will pr- uh, bring us to different kind of people also. It, yeah. it gives the people like, okay, this is, uh, I'm, I'm able to go there. This is something, this is not a small group doing it. I'm, ha- I'm, I will go as well. Yeah, that's so. wonderful. So that that will be a very exciting time for that project the next couple yeah, of months. Yeah, yeah. And the same time, yeah, it's then it's getting this uh, <clears throat> approval from the art art scene as well, from the theater scene that this is this is art project. This is so it's two sided. It's really good for we got the prize. Yeah, definitely. Because you get more, you get maybe get a chance to make it to expand a little bit. 
definitely with with uh, the audience or with who you reach that comes yeah. in there yeah. perhaps with the program so i'm i'm quite uh, curious to see where this will go and how you how, yeah. um, how it will develop yeah i, I yeah i hope you can join one of our events i hope point. so when i come back yes yeah. I, i don't know yeah. yet when i'll be back but if i get the chance i would love to yeah. one part of getting this uh, what i realize is quite because part of the things we organize is in a theater house or in a cultural centers but then part of the uh, programs we organize is just on a uh, suburbs so we we have in uh, eastern helsinki There's a lot of immigration on Eastern Helsinki, so we have there in a, just a local suburb, mm -hmm. and it's advertised over there and try to get local people to meet okay. each other. I was actually I was in Eastern Helsinki the last time I was there. I went with a social worker who had done some work in one of the uh, the area with the densest number of immigrants, and we went to yep. a, a, like an African. I mean, a real Af African cafe there it was full of, oh, of yeah. people from all over Africa, and we went and had, yeah. a, had a beer there. And we we were hoping to see them sing karaoke, but they didn't this evening. Okay. So, and it was it was an interesting experience. Yeah. Also, I, uh, but it's uh, it seemed like a very closed community for those reasons. Mm -hmm. Like they find comfort, of course, among things that they know and people that they know, and the outside yeah. world is a little distant and and probably scary. Yes. Yeah, yeah, and that's why it's one that we do cooperation with that kind of associations and that kind of groups, and we always try to bring them there some local things as well. Mm. So it's try to get people to meet. Mm -hmm. Let's. Mm -hmm. there, there's one thing I wanted to ask before that actually. Um, the I was wondering how this kind of storytelling can grow in in Finland. Um, Like there is um the last time I was there I saw there's a quite active stand up scene. There's probably yeah. quite an active bar scene as well, that you would do something in a bar or in a cafe. And maybe that's a that's a place where you can start things like this or or even just performance storytelling. In in England you would have in the UK you would have a pub scene. Yeah. Is that uh, can you compare that a little bit with what uh What you can do or not do in Finland. I I I have a feeling that it's kind of now starting in last last two years because the, as you know the stand up comedy is quite a big thing yeah. in in Finland and also spoken word. There's a lot of spoken word events in in pubs and bars. Mm -hmm. And I think in the last two years there have has started to be uh, story story clubs storytelling clubs. In different uh, different cities, mm. so that that is coming there. I have feeling more and more on on side of stand up comedy, because some mm -hmm. of the uh, some of the storytelling clubs are are run by uh, stand up comedians. At least it was just one new in Tampere. I haven't been able to go there, but most of the storytellers who perform there are stand-up comedians. But it's called storytelling club, so they it's a little bit not strictly stand-up with the rhythm, mm -hmm. but the stand-up comedians using this platform with more freedom as it is storytelling. Mm -hmm. I think at least for modern storytelling, stand-up comedy or stand-up is a is a good starting point. It Because is mostly yeah. you talk about yourself and you talk about the weird stuff that happens in your life, and you can quite easily spin that into a story, 
or, yes. or make yes. this the starting point for a longer story. And I think many storytellers do that as well. Yeah, I yeah, I use that quite a lot, and I think I nowadays use. Yeah, yeah, I start to use it more and more, and then sometimes I have a feeling like, oh, is is it going just for stand up? Like because my starting point for the story is getting all the time longer and longer and longer and longer. That's so kind of like, oh, now it's just like ten minutes of. <laughs> I wonder if there's a difference. I don't think there's a clear difference between storytelling and stand up. It's not like you can say. Uh, one thing stops here and the other one starts like there's not a line that you can draw no there's not a line no i think there's some some differences but there is not the line that this is stand-up comedy and this is storytelling and yeah i'm sure you have different rules if you want to be very strict about whether a person is a stand-up comedian or a storyteller but most yeah, of I the think... good comedians i know are, are very good storytellers and if you feel like I... a two-hour program you have to be a storyteller Yes, you have to, and that's that's my feeling as well. That most of the stand-up comedians I I like are really good storytellers. I think the, what I meant with the with the difference is the rhythm. At, at least for me, is the rhythm with stand-up comedy and storytelling. That in storytelling, I don't have. I don't have. Oh, I have to keep the audience, but I don't have the feeling that I have to make them laugh every. Mm -hmm. <laughs> With every sex, like, I don't know how long it is actually in stand-up. 15 seconds or 20 seconds? <laughs> Sometimes, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's very concentrated. I mean, stand-up or any joke has to be, it's like a concentrated story. Like, yeah, the very essence of that. And then you yeah. just let it relax a little and grow and, and you turn a joke into a story. And you don't have just the comedic element, yeah. but thoughtful elements or surprising or absurd elements. Yeah. And you have to have those in storytelling as well, but you can stretch the line like you can, at least I feel, you can you can keep it longer, longer, mm -hmm. try to keep it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's definitely yeah. a different feeling of timing. Does it still have something to do with uh, folk tales? Or do you, are you telling your, your, your own stories away from I tell the world? Both. Yeah, I do both. I still, and... Nowadays, it has changed that it's more and more folk tales. If I use folk tales, it's folk tales from Finland. Mm -hmm. I try to dig this our our own. Yeah. <laughs> but rarely, rare, really rarely, I tell, I do a show with there's none of my personal stories. That I think 95% of the time, I have no hard to say any percent, but it's always some personal material in it, or mm -hmm. some some stories I've written myself, and they are connected with with the folk folk tales. Mm. And it might be like an example that I love in Finnish folk tales something this uh, that uh, they are not so black and white. The good and evil are not so. The stories I have found that I like in Finnish, that they are not so black and white, good and evil are not so clear. The devil is actually kind of friendly character. Mm -hmm. It's kind of can help you. It's kind of your brother, even it's a devil. And and for those stories, I had built a. It's a really personal story about my grandfather who died, and I I tell the story about his uh, funerals and my big family attending to that and just um, my emotions and what happens how we are and from that 
it goes to Finnish folk tales mm-hmm. and playing with this family uh, family name with this Matti or this it goes in my family like always the firstborn boy should be called Matti or that that it used to be and there's a lot of Matti so I play with this name and then it goes to this because Matti is also hero and anti-hero of Finnish uh, folklore. Mm-hmm. So from that, it suddenly goes from a, my great-great-uncle on this playing with the devil stories. Mm-hmm. That's a, that's a, I think it's a very beautiful connection because they, I mean, it, it, it underlines that connection that these stories have with our own psyche and with things yeah. like, they basically are stories about how to live together what to do when somebody dies, um, how to deal with uh, adversities. And so, yeah, yeah. This is, sounds like a very, uh, a very interesting connection. Mm. And it's, yeah, that's, uh, then I think I continued a bit with the other, other folk ma- folklore material I have been using now from Finland with the same, same feeling because it, the main characters of the, of the story became kind of for me, I started to see them as my, not my ancestors, but I started to see where they live, and I started to feel that they might be my like long lost cousins or my mm-hmm. uncle's cousins because I, and not just not just far 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 away. I have a feeling they are not. I'm not introducing them as my family, but the connection with also because then I connect my own personal experiences where I used to live as a child about the countryside of Eastern Finland. And it's straightly, straight connected on the atmosphere where the folktale happens. Mm-hmm. Because the landscape, it's straight connected on the landscape, on the style of life, of the dreams of the people. And I, I think personally it made me, made myself more connected on mm-hmm. this folktale and on the main characters and what they were dreaming so, yeah, it's yeah. This, uh, in the, for the same question, I'm actually now working with uh, Kalevala material. You know, of yeah, course, Kalevala, yeah. and and that's gonna be. It's not personal stories at all. Like it's gonna be Kalevala performance. It's gonna be bilingual performance in Swedish and Finnish with the Swedish storyteller Mikael Öberg, and that's. Because that's interesting to work on that now because it's gonna it's not from my typical way or my my style. Of course, it's me who is performing, but it's gonna be epic. It's gonna be epic Kalevala kind of. <clears throat> the epic style of storytelling and the personal style they couldn't be more different. No. <laughs> Yet maybe if you come from like you have done personal things for so long that at some point you would even tell the epics. Uh, in a, in a, have you thought about that? Do you want to tell yeah, it in a more I have, personal yeah, way? Yeah, or? because I tell Kalevala. So I tell I tell Kalevala, and quite often if I'm abroad because people are interested about Finnish national epic, then I tell it. And I, there is some stories I have used now. How long? No. Do, 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 uh, six years maybe, the same story, and. I was performing it last year in Edinburgh. It was 10 minutes. And I said to host that, okay, it's funny. 
it's, it's kind of funny. And my girlfriend was there and she was like, what did you say? Because she has heard it like five years ago. And she's like, what did you say? It's funny? No, it's not funny at all. It's like, and because she hasn't seen me to tell it for many, many years and it has changed. It's <laughs> the, my, my way of telling it is totally different than when I started to tell it. Because I, in, in the beginning, it was really epic. It's like, wow, the world was empty. There was nothing at all. And the whole story was really epic style. And now, as I have been telling so much personal stories, it has affected on that epic as well. That is, it has to- totally changed the rhythm and totally changed my point of view as a, a storyteller on when I tell it. Uh, and also, that that makes me. I was a bit afraid when I started to work on this Kalevala project in Sweden. That can I get on this this epic uh, mindset? Uh, yeah, in the mindset, am I am I making everything just funny, or can <laughs> I can I am I making it just a joke? Mm. It's very difficult, I think, to to tell something properly epic. Yeah, but I think that's that's content. Like we we are not telling the epics anymore. Like I I wouldn't be able to tell epics like how I told tried to tell six years ago and I think that's for me at least not not the way how how it works but how do I say but at least now we we working we are not it's not gonna be personal stories it's gonna be epic mm-hmm. but of course we add there some humor some mm-hmm. uh, some rhythm and it has to be grounded that's my yeah. feeling about even you tell any big epic or any and it has to be grounded. It has to be in your body. But maybe with epics, it's the work is much longer. Like you have to, as a storyteller, you have to work longer to get the epic in your body to really, really, really understand what you are telling. Definitely. And it's a profoundly unmodern way of storytelling. Because mm. there's nothing ironic about it. There's nothing, how do you say, it's almost unapproachable and it's meant to be that yeah. way. So you're telling yeah. this epic story that is far away, that is larger than anything. Yeah. And it's, well, it's, it's a challenge. It sounds like a challenge. It, yeah. And I, mm. but the, the probably and I think, quite exciting. What I think it's, it's also, it's the same in a traditional way, what I've been reading about storytelling, that there has been these people who tell tell kind of uh, funny stories, uh, this joke and uh, folk folk tales, which are rhythm is different. They are funny, and they there is much more of those tellers who tell in a camp campfire side with people, and then there is not so many of those who who can tell these folk tales, but who are able to carry the long long epics as well. So it has been kind of. How do you say? It's a certain kind of concentration in your work that I concentrate on this. I'm working on this. I'm finding the ways to bring these these epics to people. That wasn't clear at all. No, I think I I understand. It's it's not easy yeah. to get into the right kind of mindset and to. Yeah. I think it sounds like you you're still working out your own approach to it. How you want to um, 
whether you you want to put anything of yourself into it the 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 styles and the ways that you've learned over the years or if you're just starting it from from zero basically or just yeah, take a no, different approach I, yeah with this Kalevla project i think we have because it's uh, two two of us working Mikael Öberg and me so and Mikael has been working actually 20 years with uh, Mütz and he's basically mainly telling epic old old mythologi- mythological stories and our styles like how i tell and how Mikael tells of course we will bring those on the performance i don't want to leave how i tell i don't want to leave that away how i tell but i will not use my my personal anecdotes or my mm-hmm. way of just that chit-chatting with the audience and with that project it's really we have a good possibility because we have funding a lot of time to do research so we have been able to go to archives in Finland to listen some uh, audio recordings from 1905 and and read a lot of books and find we're not using strictly the Kalevala as it is, but we have found this all because the archives are full of Kalevala poems, which are not in the in the in the book you can find from the library, but the archives are full of poems and spells and magical things. Mm-hmm. And so we finding those different elements from the Kalevala poetry from the before, before or traditional Finnish mythological elements and bringing those together on the performance. So it's not going to be that we tell the Kalevala as the book is, but building a performance from the different point of views. I'm really, that's a really interesting project. I'm, I'm really happy on working with that at the moment. Mm-hmm. It sounds very complex, all the things you have to put together to make sure it works yeah but we are really happy because we have time it's we the premiere will be next autumn so autumn 2017 we will have a pilot uh working progress so in june in stockholm but that's that's our deadline that then we will have a a pilot but the real premiere will be next autumn Mm -hmm. so it's a feeling that ah we can research we can find all this interesting elements and just Mikael lives uh, in Sweden so just sending a message like oh I found this really great great spell about most like ah I will, I will send you the English translation Wah. just this sending ideas like oh I saw this or read this like one poem and there was this nice image of an old woman standing next to the lake this like single small things uh-huh. and it wakes something in your mind as like and ah, oh, maybe we use this somehow. Maybe we put it together. So the working working process of that project is really I'm really enjoying that. Ah, oh, that's good. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like a and lot of fun. It's a lot of fun. It's a lot of fun, and it's too rarely, at least me as a storyteller, I have time to really concentrate on research and this background work on uh, on storytelling. Because quite often you have to quite quickly put something together. Yeah. And I'm yeah, in after the years I'm quite good also with that. That I get the idea of a story. I'm able to somehow 
work with that story and somehow tell that story. But then this different kind of approach that are we really digging in the ideas and and one interesting with that is that it's gonna be in Swedish and Finnish and I don't speak Swedish. I understand it quite well, uh, but Mikke, uh, Mikael doesn't understand even Finnish, so, <laughs> <laughs> so we, it, that would be one part. He has, to, he has to be able to understand uh, what I'm saying on stage, so at least the keywords and the key points. Yeah. No, but you're both professionals, you figure out the timings easily, I suppose. Yeah, yeah, but it's one part of the fun is also that he will, he has to do some parts in Finnish, like, and I have to do some <laughs> parts in Finnish, so it was a bit, at least like some, some lines, we, we will be able to both use both languages. So. All right. That would be great. I mean, you will have, your ideal audience will be a bilingual audience, of course. Yes, and... that is, that is targeted in, in Sweden, actually. The, it's produced by Fabula Storytelling, the Swedish storytelling company in Stockholm, and the target audience is uh, bilingual audiences, like uh, uh, Swedish Finns, and who, and some of them maybe the second generation of Finns living in Sweden, mm-hmm. who maybe who who don't use Finnish language so much anymore, but know a little bit at least. Yeah. So like it, a passive knowledge. Yeah. That you have. And then you you could also take it to Helsinki, where the yeah, two languages to, are, yeah, or I guess most parts of Finland where the two languages would work. Yeah, and then I think, yeah, and the, for the Finnish people who are studying Swedish, like it's not it's gonna be for adults, but probably like young adults as well. Mm-hmm. So at least when I was young, I wasn't so interested to study or learn Swedish. We have to study it in the school. So this kind of approach would give something like... Yeah, but, maybe some interest. Yeah, yeah at least. <laughs> but it's also interesting to work how to work with bilingual as as a target group. is mainly those people who understand both of the languages. So it, it cannot be this that it's... I say that there was a tree and then Mikke is saying it in the Swedish. No, because it has to... Yeah, it has to work. They have to work. The it has to parts. work. They have to like work together. The one line. Has it? And not translated, <laughs> but so that it's all the all the main images has to come so that everybody definitely understand. But mainly it should be that we are not... It's not going to be double-double. It's going to be all the time going forward. Thank you very much for listening to this episode of Voice of the Fire. I will put links linking to Marcus's various projects in the description of this episode, so you can read up on the three troubadours, on the story-sharing universum, and on the Kalevala project. And I hope All of you are going to tune in again for the next episode, where we are going to stay in Scandinavia, moving to Norway for a conversation with the Norwegian storyteller Torgrim Melumstene.